0: Hello, and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights. I am joined by our senior analyst, Dija Bitschie. Hi, Oliver. And covering the news for us, we also have Zachary Skidmore, our senior reporter. It's been a busy week. We have another PPA update we're going to take you through after the news, and after that. Deela is going to take us through her latest research on energy security and the transition to the role of gas in the UK. That's coming up later. But in the meantime, Zach, what's been happening in the news?
1: So there are several stories I'd like to highlight. Um, the first being Octopus Energy who announced its intention to make a £1.2 billion investment in the Asia-Pacific region by 2027. The investment will go into developing both wind and solar capacity in the region, with around half of the proposed investment being focused on the Japanese renewable market. This is a broader drive by Octopus Energy to invest in the region. At the start of the year, Octopus invested in Japanese solar business Yotsua Capital, and this was made through the Octopus Sky Fund. Um, Yotsua Capital, which is based in Tokyo, is aiming to develop around 250 megawatts of solar capacity in Japan over the next five years, and the power produced will be offloaded through a series of corporate power purchase agreements. The investment has been fueled by an increasingly ambitious Japanese government which has set several ambitious renewable targets which makes the market increasingly tantalizing to a business like Octopus Energy which is looking to grow its international footprint. The second major um, news story I'd like to highlight was um, Total Energy who launched its biggest battery energy storage project in Europe. This um, was in um, a refinery based in Antwerp and has a power rating of 25 megawatts and a capacity of 75 megawatt hours. Um, the project is Total Energy's first in Belgium and adds to a robust portfolio of um, battery energy storage projects in its pipeline. Speaking with Total Energies, um, we learned that the the battery energy storage project is part of an overall strategy to ver- to develop flexible assets connected to its renewable energy portfolio. They stated that their objective is to continue to develop their portfolio of flexible assets in Belgium over the coming year as well as their electricity activities the project is 100% shareholder owned and has been financed wholly by equity and the installation is expected to reach operational status at the end of 2024 with grid connection occurring simultaneously
0: uh, as part of the strategy total Energy has been investing in not just this but several energy storage Uh, projects, I believe. In in what kind of markets are they interested in?
1: So they've been focused predominantly within the French market. Um, This is in response to the French government's long-term call for tenders to respond to grid stabilisation needs. So in December 2021, Total Energy launched France's largest battery-based energy storage facility. The site of Flanders Centre in Dunkirk has a power capacity of 61 megawatts and total storage capacity of 61 megawatt hours. This was followed in May 2022 when the company launched a battery energy storage project with 25 megawatt hour storage capacity on the Carling petrochemical platform, combining two gas fired and battery power plants. The final story of note surrounds Spanish oil major Repsol, who is set to invest a considerable sum into the development of 1.7 gigawatts of solar capacity in Italy. Repsol has said that it's planning to invest around 500 million euros to achieve the portfolio capacity. Was to propose new capacity in Italy, a busy market that Repsol has not um, invested in as of yet. So this will be comprised of 943 megawatts of wind capacity and 825 megawatts of solar. They're also developing a series of greenfield projects, including 11 megawatts of solar capacity in Puglia. This is uh, very important as Repsol is in, kind of ni- it's in dire need of new renewable capacity if it is to achieve its often stated aim of having 6 gigawatts of renewable capacity online by 2025 and 20 gigawatts in place by the end of the current decade. Currently, the business has around 2 gigawatts online, which is quite a small amount relative to the lofty targets that they set. And when, especially when placed in comparison to the profits currently being recorded by oil and gas companies as a result of the rising prices.
0: This certainly is part of a much larger um, move we've seen along the oil majors building up their own renewable capacity and they have all set lofty targets. It'll be interesting to see how they do on achieving those. Thank you, Zach, for the update uh, on the deals being closed this week. Uh, once again, as mentioned, we have a PPA update. There's been a lot of activity in the market this week. Um, Zach, which stories do you think uh, stood out the most?
1: There has been indeed, Oliver. I've picked three um, PPAs which have been signed in the past week to highlight. The first being R+ who went to PPA with Idaho Power. This is a long-term power purchase agreement for the company's new 200-megawatt Pleasant Valley solar facility in Idaho. The project is the largest contracted solar facility in the Idaho power system and it was awarded a PPA through a negotiated process with Meta and Idaho Power. Output from the project will go to the same grid that supports Meta's new data center in Kuna, Idaho.
0: Another one of those big tech companies buying up all this PPA capacity for their operations. And presumably Meta will be publishing all their green statistics based on deals like this.
1: Definitely. But the second PPA I'd like to highlight was made by renewables developer, Sonadix, who signed an off-take agreement with StatCraft. Linked to some of its new solar capacity in Italy. The payers who produced 10 year PPA deals see StatCraft offtake power from two solar plants built by Sonodex with a combined capacity of 34 megawatts. The projects are currently being built in Lazio in central Italy, and Sonodex and StatCraft actually have a lengthy history of in- inking offtake deals. For example, last year StatCraft agreed to offtake power from a 22 megawatt solar portfolio in Italy developed by Sonodex. The final one, PPA. Also involves um, StatCraft. It was between StatCraft and Baywa, um, who inked a 10-year power purchase agreement for the 42-megawatt farm in Scotland. The scheme, which is located in South Lanarkshire, has already been linked via fixed PPA with BT, which agreed in 2022 to off around 80% of the power that the wind farm produces. The remaining 20% will go to StatCraft, meaning there now is a route to the market for all the power that the project produces.
0: So why is StatCraft uh, involved in not just the selling of renewables power from its own projects, but the buying up of uh, power from other players like Sonodix and Baywa?
1: I think it's a desire to kind of diversify their generation and offtake portfolio. Because obviously Statcraft is not only within the renewable market so across many sectors. Um, we actually had a, um, a Q&A with um, their PPA team. We spoke to Ina Hoffert at Statcraft SVP of the origination about the effectiveness of variable PPA and how the market has changed over the last 10 years, and particularly how regulatory issues have impacted companies when entering PPA. So definitely have a check out of that if you have the opportunity, because it is a very interesting read.
0: That's right. And it's available right now on the Inspiratio website. Links can be found in the show notes below. Um, Thank you for the news update, Zach. Wonderful. Since the 2022 invasion of Ukraine, energy security has been gaining more and more ground and becoming a bigger priority for governments and large corporates throughout the world. And the UK's particular place in the energy security space has been uh, a topic of much scrutiny. How are you doing, Dila?
2: Yeah, doing well, Oliver. Um, and exactly like you said, um, yeah, the uh, the UK and Europe are actually sort of now emerging from one of its more tr- more most turbulent winters uh, due to the energy crisis that's been caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, it has actually, some of the industry experts' worst-case scenarios haven't materialized as much. As um, as was feared, um, despite some quite significant price increases for uh, energy, um, and as we all know, it's sort of this energy crisis emerged amidst ongoing um, economic recovery from the COVID nineteen pandemic as well, and also global push for the increased adoption of renewable energy sources. So it's just added another pillar of urgency to overall climate efforts, um, and just put another. Um, highlighted yet again the importance of energy security and energy transition.
0: So can you perhaps start by giving us an overview of where the UK sits in that, that picture with all these competing priorities? Um, how do the UK's uh, targets for energy fit into this?
2: Yes, so the United Kingdom currently is aiming to achieve a net zero emissions by 2050 um, and it's also placing quite a significant emphasis. Emphasis, I'm sorry, quite a significant emphasis on transitioning to a fully decarbonized electricity system by 2035. Um, And yes, that target is actually coming really, really fast. So um, a lot of um, the efforts are focused on renewables and low carbon energy sources. Um, And while renewable energy has actually experienced quite remarkable growth uh, in the country over the past decade, in particular, there remains a considerable distance to cover um, in achieving these ambitious targets. For the UK, gas still continues to play quite a significant role, actually. It is its primary source for electricity generation, and it accounts for almost 40% of total requirements, which is Um, followed by wind which sits at 26.8% and then nuclear at 15.5%. So gas has been the essential foundation for both residential and commercial heating, cooking and electricity generation in the UK due to the country's history of abundant gas reserves and production as well. So the UK has traditionally fulfilled all of its gas demand by relying on domestic production from the UK continental shelf. However, there, has, um, there is a projected gradual and continuous decrease in UK offshore gas production over the coming decades with a decline of 2.7 billion cubic meters by 2050, according to the North Sea Transition Authority. However, despite this decline, gas is expected to continue to play a crucial ro- role. Uh, and the UK's energy security and transition to net zero as it is looking to decarbonize.
0: So where do the big fuels of the past fit into this picture? So the UK has been trying to move away from coal, uh, it looked like we were moving away from nuclear at one point, now it looks like we're kind of going to hang more heavily on that. Where do those uh, fit into this picture?
2: Yeah, exactly like you say. So the UK government is, um, continues to be committed to phasing out coal um, and it is also, facing currently a declining capacity um, of nuclear power. Um, so, new coal-phased, sorry, coal-phased, coal-fired power generation is set to be phased out by the end of 2024, which is in line with net zero targets. Um, the closure of nuclear power plants um, is kind of riddled with problems because newer constructions are faced with heavy, like quite significant delays and uh, high costs. Um, that have been ongoing um, and there is actually by the end of the decade all but one of the existing nuclear plants will be shutting down. Um, And all of these uh, conditions are actually opening up uh, additional room for natural gas to contribute to the country's energy security and transition.
0: If you want to find out more about the UK's plans to rely more on SMR reactors, there's plenty of information about that to be found on the Inspiration website. Sorry, dealer. carry on. Yeah,
2: (laughs) good plug. So gas is recognised as the most energy intensive source in the UK's energy mix, especially after the coal phase out. Um, It is, however, also increasingly important to understand how gas is being used and what its future will look like in the context of evolving energy security. So the role of it cannot be ignored um, or it runs the risk of being mismanaged in the short and long term.
0: How much does the UK actually rely on international gas markets which were affected by obviously uh, the new relationship between Russia and Europe because the UK obviously has a lot of its own gas fields.
2: Yes that's correct so in the immediate future the UK's response to the supply issue primarily involves diversifying the sources of its imported gas however compared to other European nations actually the UK traditionally relied on much less gas imports from Russia um, resulting in a lower need to substitute Substitute Russian pipeline gas with um, LNG from outside of Europe. Nevertheless, the proportion of LNG in the UK's gas imports has still surged to forty-seven percent, up from twenty-six in the previous decade, um, according to data from the Office of Budget Responsibility. But imports, gas supplies from Russia, have dwindled to less than one percent. Um, so the UK is relatively well positioned for the continent-wide shift towards LNG imports boasting around a quarter of Europe's regasification facilities prior to the pandemic, which is partially compensating for the country's comparatively low gas storage capacity. Consequently, in the past year, the UK's gas exports more than tripled as a portion of the imported LNG was processed and sent to Europe through gas interconnectors. However, in the short term, the availability of LNG supply to Europe is restricted due to insufficient regasification capacity and also the absence of pipelines connecting countries like Spain and the UK, both of which possess substantial regasification capacities. So all of these factors together are actually keeping the wholesale gas prices quite high in the highly integrated market of the region. In the medium term, the OBR anticipates that investment in the liquefaction facilities will increase global LNG supply by 19% from 2021 to 2026. Additionally, significant investments are also expected in new regasification facilities across Europe that are contributing to a decline in market expectations for European gas prices in the upcoming years.
0: I think that's a very interesting point you bring up there, Dylan, because obviously we have seen a huge increase in the reliance uh, on LNG, not just in the UK but across Europe. Germany is very desperately building all its new LNG facilities for um, supplanting Russian gas with imported gas from the wider world, notably America. Um, and so, in the short term, I think that uh, LNG is obviously going to fill a huge part of that. But it's not all about the supply side, as we've been uh, talking about now. It's also about the demand side and what um, a country's strategy is for the use of energy. So, what has the uh, sort of top level strategy for the UK been looking like on that front?
2: Yeah, so looking forward, looking ahead customer involvement um, and sort of controlling demand, the, the demand side of things is also going to play a crucial role in the energy transition. Um, and in order to get customers involved, there, there really needs to be a clearer understanding of how energy is being used. Um, and we've seen initiatives such as demand flexibility services last year that have incentivized customers to reduce their energy consumption during peak hours, for example, and have been compensated for their... Um, efforts in that, on that side of things and this has actually shown quite uh, a lot of positive results with over a million customers participating um, and significant energy savings being achieved as well.
1: So what role is renewable energy playing in um,
2: this? Yeah so renewable energy is going to be extremely critical of course in the countries and really the regions or the world's energy security transition, um, however it is still facing uh, quite a few challenges, which include grid capacity expansion, storage improvements, and also interconnectivity. The UK's grid connectivity needs to be enhanced, particularly in terms of interconnectivity with neighbouring countries to facilitate energy trading and also cooperation. Then there's also storage challenges that are arising from the intermittency of renewable energy sources that necessitate a sufficient amount of renewable energy storage to manage periods when generation is low. Um, at the same time, grid connectivity remains a persistent hurdle for renewable projects, causing delays and congestion in the pipeline of renewable initiatives. Um, and there are some projections that estimate that around 20 billion billion worth of projects are currently stuck in the connections queue, which just goes to highlight the need for efficient connections um, and their need to achieve the objective of a net zero power grid by 2035.
0: So one what, what of the things that we talk about um, quite a lot on this podcast are things like green hydrogen, where we kind of have a view that this reliance on gas is temporary and it belongs to. term, we want to phase out that gas usage uh, with a much larger role for hydrogen generated from renewables. That's the I- ideal model uh, from many, many people's point of view. And however, it sort of seems that in the short term, we might have this over reliance on gas even more than we have had in the recent past, particularly also on those uh, extra imports, as Dila, you were talking about just now. So, how do you sort of square an increase in gas usage with these net zero goals? Is there, is, is there this role for uh, other technologies like carbon capture and storage to come in? Uh, how, how, how does a net zero targeted economy? deal with that from an energy security point of view?
2: Yeah, so carbon capture, utilization and storage has been um, a technology that's been um, quite prominently been thrown around uh, lately, as governments um, in the UK and the US have dedicated quite a bit of investment towards the technology, actually. However, I think it is important to note that this technology is not a silver bullet to combat climate change, as is communicated. Um, the main solutions still remain uh, renewable energy sources, batteries, EVs, etc. It does um, play a minor role in some applications in more hard to abate sectors, um, but it should be a parallel move to sustainable ways uh, that are being pursued in those industries like green hydrogen. And those industries are cement, steel and carbon recycling. So there is some effectiveness in those sectors. But um, considering that it's been around for decades, the carbon capture technologies have been around since the 1970s um, and they require huge amounts of investment in capital to even get off the ground. Um, and its main application in its current form is actually... Um, and this is where the greenwashing sort of controversies are coming from as well. Mm, of um, exactly. So it is mainly being used by oil and gas companies again to then extract more oil and gas because it's just being the captured carbon is being put into the ground again to extract more oil and gas. So it is just continued to being used where it should not be used, which is the fossil fuel industry. I think it is clear that in a future towards net zero, we shouldn't be enhancing fossil fuels. So I think it's fair to say that the future of carbon capture is uncertain, Um, so governments and project developers have announced ambitious plans for this, however only a limited number of commercial capture projects have progressed to the final investment decision stage. Um, And I think it's important to remember what the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has said about the technology. While it recognises the potential of it, it also acknowledges the risks associated with relying too heavily on this technology to meet climate targets.
0: Well, thank you very much for looking into that, Dila. It's an absolutely huge topic and you've covered a lot of ground there very well. I think that uh, key discussion there about the conflict perhaps between renewables and um, carbon capture technology is one that we're going to see a lot more of in the future, would you agree?
2: Yes, exactly. So its main critics really argue that instead of investing such significant resources in unproven carbon capture technologies, more emphasis should be placed on investing in proven renewable energy sources like solar and wind, which have demonstrated effectiveness in reducing carbon emissions. We
0: don't have a carbon capture specialist here to argue the contrary case, but uh, they might say something like, well, if we're going to be using these um, uh, gas technologies, in the short term anyway, we might as well try and reduce their carbon footprint while we do that. Uh, but of course, where you, where the investment goes is a battle that will be fought over the next few years and we'll be covering every step. I'd like to say a massive thank you to both of our contributors today, Dean Shawichi. Thank you, Oliver, and Zachary skidmore My pleasure. If you've enjoyed the episode, then please do consider subscribing and looking us up. Your feedback is always welcome. It's podcasts at inspiration.com for comments and contributions that we always love to hear from you so please get in touch that's it for this week we will be back again with more news next week and in the meantime thank you for listening goodbye goodbye